Welcome into the Clap Trap. Brought to you by Ultrasound Productions. Now also playing on 90.7 WKKL. think I feel sick you guys this is just it's getting to be too much in this series and right now I just have a sinking feeling that things are not going to go well even in game three which is going to happen tonight uh, in Boston now I do think that there is going to be a turnaround and we are going to fight back a little bit but uh, I don't know I don't know what to say Bruins now down 2-0 in the series uh, welcome into the show. Going to start off with the Bruins, obviously. We're going to get into some Red Sox topics. I'm going to have Andrew come on later to talk all about the Patriots draft to get our mind off of things. Uh, but right now, as Bruins fans, you can't feel good. You can't feel good at this time just because of how badly we got dominated once again. Uh, another game that we end up losing 5-2, to two, and yes, whatever. The score probably didn't indicate that it was that big of a... Uh, the disadvantage for the Bruins. It wasn't that bad of a game overall, I guess. But it's just it's, it just doesn't look good. We can't score against this team. It's pretty clear that they have our number when it comes to you know the defensive side of things. They've been able to figure us out. Obviously, we're going to change over from Omar to Swayman going into Game Three. That has to happen. You have to create a spark. I completely agreed with keeping Omar in for Game Two. Why would you, you know, change the goalie who didn't necessarily blow the game in game one? Yes, they gave up five goals as well in game one. But do you actually blame Olmark for all those goals or, you know, the majority of them, not his fault? So I was OK with him going back in. But now you need that spark. So we're going to change it up going into game three. I, I don't know. It was it was a tough game overall. It was a crazy, wild game. A lot of crazy things happened. We're going to get to the hit between Pasternak on Ranta that knocked him out of the game. Anti Ranta, their backup goaltender for Frederick Anderson. And then all of a sudden you got this new kid in who apparently doesn't even speak English and they, they rallied around him. So that was terrible for the Bruins, but I don't know. Every, everything was tough. Uh, you finally got something going on the power play, I guess for the Bruins and, and Bergeron was able to get his 47th career playoff goal, which is nice. And I did see some moments where they started to figure things out on the uh, the power play in the offensive zone. It once again was another one of those types of Bruins playoffs games where it seemed like we had all the momentum. We had all the aggression throughout the game. We were playing much better. The ice was tilted in one direction. And then the other team gets a couple of really good bounces, gets a couple of goals. And all of a sudden you're completely out of it in a game that seemed like you had control of. So I don't know. 
Once again, Slavin's doing great things for them, pinching down and making big plays for for Carolina goals. You got, uh, you know, Clifton and Forbert just not being good enough to be out there on the ice. Now you're going to have Hampus Lindholm out for this game, clearly, maybe more, maybe the rest of the series, however long that actually goes for the Bruins. So the defense is going to be hurting once again. You tried switching up the pairings in that game, and it just didn't work out for the team. Uh, there was a lot of lazy breakout moments that caused turnovers that should not have happened, especially on that goal, that first one uh, for the Hurricanes. you got to be able to break out of the zone. Their ability to, to back-check or forecheck on us has been something that we thought that the Bruins were great at all season. And yet you have the Carolina Hurricanes doing it to you. They're a great defensive team on all sides. And I don't know, it's it's it was rough. You heard uh, Taylor Hall, if you were watching the game, in between the first and second period, he was interviewed about it. He said that the, the team was getting flustered multiple times in their own zone and they need to figure things out, which makes complete sense because, like I said, the lack of a breakout for this team has been noticeable. It's it's been it's been a rough rough time. So I, I don't know. It, it's it, you, you keep hearing, uh, and also the broadcast just kept talking about how they need to try and put the perfection line back together, which I absolutely hate. And they ended up doing it in this game. I guess you you needed a spark at some point when you were down. I get that, Cassidy, but I hate the fact that they had to even do that because I loved the change up of the lines throughout the entire season. And then we're in game two, and already we're switching it back of the playoffs. I don't, I don't know. There's not a lot of great stuff that I can say about this game for the Bruins. Obviously, we're going to go into the game, uh, game three, trying to get back in this series. Obviously, it's going to look a heck of a lot different if you can somehow pull off a game three victory, and it's a two to one series lead for the Carolina Hurricanes, but I don't know. I don't know. You go out there. You couldn't even do anything when you pulled the goalie with four and a half minutes left. You got a power play. It was six on four because of a high stick to Marshan, and you still couldn't really get fully back into that game. So I, I don't know. The chippiness was crazy. Forbert's trying to fight people after the final whistle. This team is going to be physical again in game three. You're going to have the home crowd that's going to be able to pump them up some, but is it going to be enough? I don't know. I don't feel good right now. I don't feel good at all, but I wanted to talk about the other major thing that happened in this game, and that was Pasternak running into Ranta, so I want to talk about that when we come back after this on 90.7 WKKL. The Clap Trap with your host, Zach Clap. Drops it off for Hall, the fly pattern, and Ranta is in a collision with Pasternak, lost his stick, helmet came off. Ranta came out to play the puck and cleared it by himself. Yeah, the Bruins were using that fly pattern. It was a drop pass for Taylor Hall by David Pasternak, who continued on his route. They went for the fly pad, and they didn't get the angle that they were looking for because it came right back in the direction of Ranta, who's going to clear it himself. And Pasternak tried to avoid the goaltender. He didn't go straight into him. He tried to make a play on the clearing of the puck with his body. He thought it was going to come right at him. Yeah. And by doing that, now he's going to make contact with the goaltender. And Carolina's hoping it's just the blood that's coming from the face of Ranta and nothing else. Well, we've seen the five-minute call in other games in the <laughs> postseason where it's been reduced. Yes. We'll see what happens here. Ranta goes to the room, and that brings on Piotr 
Kachetkov. Pasternak is making a motion like he's blocking that clear. Yeah, the problem was he was thinking that puck's going to come at his body. Right there, he's bracing for it. And then as he realizes he's not going to get a piece of it, his hands come up a little high. And I think that's where the contact is with Ranta. You know, the hands, the gloves, the stick into the face. Brick, what in the heck were you looking at, my man? I get it. You're a hometown guy. You're trying to give it from the hometown perspective, but... Pasternak wasn't trying to hit Ranta right there. He clearly put his hands out and basically smacked him in the face as he was going by. Yes, he originally tried to get out of the way of the puck that he thought maybe was coming back towards him, but I don't know. I don't see how you can see, even with the most homer of takes, and it seemed like Jack also agreed with him, but I don't see how you can agree with, <laughs> you know, he was trying to avoid the goaltender there. He was trying to create contract contact, and I, I, I mean, I don't get it. I don't get why that was... The move for Pasternak. I was going into the game, and I'm talking up how I thought Pasternak was finally going to break out. It score a goal. Maybe the power play unit was going to get better. I was all hopeful for that kind of stuff. And this is not what I was hoping for from Pasternak whatsoever. His contribution to this game, once again, was not what you wanted. Was not what you saw from a 40-goal scorer in the season who was able to dominate offensively. This guy was out there and doing none of that, basically. And instead, he goes out, he knocks out the, the opposing goalie, which I thought was kind of weird because in the replays, yeah, it didn't really look like he made much contact with his head, but then Ranta's obviously bleeding from his mouth. So there clearly was. You also ran into his leg. So I don't know. I mean, Brick and Jack, man, I, you know, once again, I, I know you got to be the hometown guys, but it just that didn't feel like he was trying to get out of the way of Ranta. Maybe the original puck shot, yes, you can say he tried to avoid that, but then he stuck his arms out very clearly and attempted to make contact with, basically, with Ranta's head. So, I don't know what he's trying to say. Andy Brickley, I, I get it, man. I, I get that that's the, the, the whole thing, but it doesn't work out that way. And it's just funny to me, too, that, you know, Pasternak, David Pasternak, one of the things that we complain about with him especially when he gets into the playoffs as soon as he runs into anyone who's trying to be physical with him he turtles he goes back into his shell and you never hear from him again and you hope that that's not going to be the case the remainder of this series obviously we're changing things up and going back to Boston for game three tonight you need it's an absolute must win I said game two was a must win but this is a no-brainer must win for the Bruins you have to change the momentum in this series and bringing out Swayman will help that, but you're already down Hampus Lindholm now from an, in, an injury in that game or game two where he suffers that hit, uh, you know, which was a devastating hit and and a clean hit, unfortunately. Uh, you know, Lindholm, you, you had your head down. That was just bad. But this Pasternak hit on the goaltender, on Ranta, and I don't know if Ranta's going to be back for this game uh, or, or not, how that's going to go. I would assume that he is going to be, but I haven't heard much about that. We'll, we'll find out more as we get closer to the game. But it, 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 was this not, to anybody else, did this not seem like Pasta's only mindset was to create contact here and, 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 and do something with that goaltender who had gotten out of the crease? Which I find funny because this is the only person on the ice that Pasta is willing to create contact with is the goaltender. You're not trying to go out there and be physical against any other players. Find a small uh, offensive player forward or something, a small defenseman, which I don't think Carolina has any of, and try and go get physical against them. Instead, you're going against the goalie. 
I, I don't know. It's <laughs> That's a hard look for Pasternak. I mean, one of the most skilled players in the league offensively, but man, as soon as it gets physical, he is just a no-show, and, and that is brutal for us. So we'll see how things go in, in Game 3. Like I said, uh, I, it seemed like a galvanizing moment when Pasternak did knock the goalie out of the game, when he did knock Ranta out of the game, and then all of a sudden you have this crazy guy who I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce his name. I, I would butcher it way more than anybody else has, and he can't even speak English. So And that's all they're talking about on the broadcast. And all of a sudden, you're thinking, wow, here we go. Now Carolina's going to have this crazy rookie kid who's come in, and this is his fourth career NHL game, first career playoff game, and he's going to go on some kind of crazy run just because Pasternak knocked out Ranta. Not that we were necessarily getting to anti-Ranta at all in this game, but I don't know. You, you hope, as a Bruins fan... You never wish for an injury, but if there is going to be an injury and it's going to be the opposing goaltender, you hope that you can then get some good shots on net and get to that guy who's flustered and thrown into a situation that he wasn't necessarily prepared for, but it wasn't able to happen. So, I don't know. It's... it's... We're in a tough situation. You can tell by the tone of my voice. I'm defeated right now. I feel very defeated. But you get game three. You find you find a way to somehow pull out game three. And all of a sudden, you're in a 2-1 series. Still having home games coming up. And, and I don't know how things going to go. I'm actually looking into it right now. It looks like Ranta's going to try and make a go of it. So he'll be back in there. And it'll be on the road. You probably can't put in the, goalie, the, the rookie goaltender on the road anyways. But it'll be Swayman versus Ranta, and we're going to see how things go. I'm hopeful, but I'm not I'm not confident whatsoever in this team. Come on, Bruins. Get back in this series. Let's try and make this something. All right. Time to talk about the Red Sox when we come back after this on 90.7 WKKL. The Claptrap with your host, Zach Clapp. To get one final out, he will go to the bullpen as Jake Diekman is now in. He gets a chance here against Jared Wolf. Full count. Two on, two out. And that ball's headed to right. Mike Trout is going to score the tying run of the game as Jared Walsh delivers here in the ninth. What an at-bat by Jared Walsh. That is now a Major League Baseball high, seven blown saves. First, he'll deal with the number eight hitter, Dahlbeck versus DePera. And the throw down. Wow, the strike him out, throw him out. Impressive work there by Ryan Tapera as we're going to extras. Tapera the strikeout and Stassi the gun down to second. JD Martinez hits that ball to left. Easy pickings though for Jared Walsh. And the Boston Red Sox fall to 0 5 in extra innings. They had this game in hand and it slipped away. What an absolutely terrible way to end a baseball game. I mean, you go into the eighth inning, Xander Bogarts gets you that lead with the home run. Great job by him going over the monster. And it was a it, you know a game that I thought all of a sudden, okay, the Red Sox are going to kind of make a little bit of a comeback here, win a game against the Angels, a good Angels squad, and you're going to be able to kind of show how this team is, is coming back to life after a nice 4-0 win on Tuesday. You play on Wednesday. You get that lead late in the game. You got Jake Diekman coming in. He blows it because he stinks. And you have the league-leading seventh-blown save for the Red Sox. What are we doing? That's just brutal. That's a brutal statistic to have already at this time of the year. And I know, diehard Red Sox fans, I get it. It is early in the season still, but you can't feel good right now. 
with the way things happened. You get into a situation, too, where you did blow the save, but you have an opportunity to keep things going. Bobby Dahlbach's up at the plate, and you heard it in that little intro clip where they have Vasquez on first, and I'm sitting there watching the game thinking, okay, they're throwing over to first, they're throwing over to first. Why are they throwing over to first? It's Vasquez. He's not going to be stealing in this situation or many, or basically any situation. Why would you have him in a crucial spot in the game trying to steal a base? Uh, you know, Vasquez, I like you and all that, but he's not the st stolen base guy. Certainly not the stolen base catcher that you would be sending in this situation, but instead you, you get a strikeout on Dawback and they throw down on Vazquez trying to steal I guess it was a hit and run maybe but I don't even know if Dawback swung in that moment so you end up getting knocked out of that inning because of a stupid base running decision you you go on into further into the game Barnes gets in the game and they end up blowing it open to the point where they score six runs in the 10th inning and you're now down 10 to 10 to 4 you end up scoring one more but I, I, I don't know brutal decision by the Red Sox to not only to send that runner there, but just it, it, that, that whole, I don't know, the whole end of the game, your bullpen once again shows that it stinks and it can't get the job done when it had the opportunity to do so. I, I don't know. It, I mean, Diekman came in, pitched 17 pitches, can't hit the zone whatsoever, nine of which were balls, and then he, he ended up giving up a huge fly ball out. It could have been much worse. They could have won it probably earlier in the game to with Diekman on the mound. So I, I, I don't know. It was it was brutal. Brutal overall. I mean, I guess one of the lone bright spots in that game on Wednesday was Trevor Story kind of not necessarily broke out, but he had multiple hits in this game, multiple RBIs. He was able to give you something and start to get going in the uh, on the offensive side of things. And hopefully that's going to be something that turns around going forward. But Garrett Whitlock, great job through four innings. Is that all that that guy can handle, though, once he got into the fifth inning? Once you start to get into that point in the roster, that's the reason why it seems like he can't be a starting pitcher because he doesn't have enough gas. And I know he's trying to figure it out. He's trying to get into that that mindset. And it's hard to go from a reliever to a starter and be able to get five-plus innings pitched in each game that you go out there and you're hurling. But I, I don't know. He, he gets into the fifth inning. He's only pitched 69, 70 pitches, something like that, and he just gets – shelled at that point uh, to the point of you know giving up the two-run lead and now all of a sudden you're thinking can can Whitlock ever go more than five innings I don't know I don't know how that's going to be so they, there are a lot of question marks and then you go into the game last night obviously and you just get absolutely dominated by Shohei Otani that guy is uh, I mean if you don't like Shohei Otani and you're a baseball fan I don't know what's going on with you because he is the revolution the, he is the next wave the next generation of baseball players and hopefully there's going to be more of them he went two for four from the plate and then he pitched seven scoreless innings where he had 11 strikeouts what a line what a line for Shohei Otani to to be able to do that, and their team wins eight to nothing in the game. Yeah, uh, you know they, they were able to just dominate you on all sides of the ball. The Sox weren't doing much of anything at all whatsoever. I mean, you had a couple of hits from some guys, but otherwise it was a terrible performance by most, mostly from Tanner Houck, who came into the game and just absolutely got obliterated in two and a third innings, giving up seven earned runs. <laughs> I don't know. So, I, I mean, Hill was fine. That, that was good. So he's been okay, I guess. 
decently, but you can't be relying on an extremely old uh, 42-year-old pitcher to be anything for this team going into the future, I think. So I don't know. There's a lot of big question marks. You, you got to kind of hate the start of the season as a Red Sox fan if, you're, if you've been watching the whole time and, and watching this team go to a 10-16 and 16 record with their pitching being horrible or sometimes their bats are terrible. It's, I don't know, it, it, it's been brutal. It's been brutal to watch uh, them giving up so many leads late in games. Like I said, league-leading seventh-blown save in that game where Diekman came in and blew that one. So you end up losing two out of three to the Angels at home. Now you're going to go into a three-game series with the White Sox, who are playing really well right now, before you play two games against the Braves as well. So that's the next five games that you're going into against good competition. Really good competition, in my opinion. I mean, the White Sox record wouldn't suggest that they're playing good because they're just around 500, but that is a good team. And then the Braves, they, I mean, like I said they, they, before, they, they are the former champs. Once again, another team right around 500, but they are good enough. So I don't know. Maybe the, maybe the Red Sox can figure things out over these next five games. I don't have the most confidence in the world with it, though. I don't. I really don't. All right. That was your Red Sox segment. We're going to move on now. We're going to talk some Patriots draft talk with Andrew when we come back after this on 90.7 WKKL. The Claptrap with your host, Zach Clapp. Okay, we are joined now by my good friend, Andrew, who talks everything about the Patriots. We just had the draft happen. I know we're a little late to the party with this episode. Everybody's been talking about it for the whole week, and we've been talking about other things throughout the show. We had, obviously, the Bruins to talk about, a little bit about the Red Sox. We'll have some Celtics coming up, but we got to get into this Patriots draft, so I bring in my, my Patriots insider, Patriots underscore Andrew on Twitter, to talk all about this. So, Andrew... Thank you again for coming back onto the show. I always appreciate it. All the good insight that you have about these draft picks. Like I have been saying before, and if you've been listening to previous episodes, Andrew does a great breakdown on all of these players, especially going into the draft. But now we got to hear what he thinks about the players that were picked coming out of the draft and what we think that the Patriots did overall, how they did. So first of all, Andrew, were you happy with the overall draft class for the Patriots? Or do you think that they went a wrong direction anywhere? How are you feeling now coming out of the draft with what the Patriots were able to do? I mean, it was a solid draft for them, for sure. They got some guys that are you know, going to be able to probably play for them and contribute a little bit as rookies. But I'll say overall, as a whole, I feel like the draft was underwhelming is probably the best way to put it. Right. Now, I think that that was basically because going into the draft, we thought that it was going to be a lower tier draft compared to years past. There wasn't as many high-tier talents. We had talked about it on previous episodes. We don't know how many players are going to come out and actually be studs out of this draft or what you're going to be able to get for depth pieces and things like that. And obviously, the first pick that the Patriots had, we went after trading back, first of all, which we had t discussed that before, we thought that there was a good likelihood that they would trade back. But they go ahead and trade back to pick number 29 in the first round, and they go after a guard called Cole Strange, who has been compared to a player like Logan May, from what I've seen. Now, do you like the pick in Cole Strange? Uh, first, we'll break it down from do you actually like the player itself by itself? And then secondly, did you like where he was drafted for the Patriots? I definitely like the player. He's exactly the type of player that the Patriots typically look for. You know, he's tough. He's versatile. Um, he's he's actually got similar, similar measurables to Charles Cross, who was an offensive tackle who got drafted early in the first round. So, I mean, there's maybe some potential of him sliding over to left tackle at some point. But 
I guess this is a classic case of I like the player, but I hate the price. I just feel like, you know, at 29, you're just you're reaching for a guard. And I know, you know, a lot of other media outlets have said, well, you know, Bill Belichick, he knew that, you know, this guy wasn't going to be on the board. I'm kind of calling a bluff on that because between the Patriots pick at 29 and the next time they picked, not a single offensive lineman was taken, which, you know, we can look at that and say, all right, so all these teams that wanted Cole Strange like or need help on the offensive line, it was Cole Strange or bust for them, yet he was, you know, this guy was consistently ranked outside the top 100, which don't get me wrong, those big boards aren't, you know, the end-all be-all by any means, but it just, I don't know, he... Everybody saw the video of Sean McVay kind of laughing at the pick. You know, their first pick was 104, and they were kind of like, oh, man, we thought he might be there for us. Ha ha. Like, it was definitely a reach, any way you want to spin it. And I'm not I'm not a very big fan of ever using a top 30 pick. You know, I guess in this kind of draft, you wouldn't call, like, call it a premium pick. But you look at some of these other positions, like pass rushers or, you know, offensive tackle on either side. You very rarely find guys like that that succeed at the pro level outside of the top 40 or so picks. But you routinely find guards on day three in rounds five, six, and seven that end up being really good. So I think the big problem there is not really so much the player, but the opportunity cost of going after a more premium position. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, when you're going after a guy that high and it's on the offensive line, usually it's going to be a tackle. Now, you did say that you think that he might be able to slot over into a tackle position. Do you think that's something that the Patriots would actually try and do? Do you think they'll try and keep him inside and just make him like an eight-year, ten-year starter with this team at that guard position that you were able to get in there? And then also, do you think there's anything to be said about the fact that if you pick him in the first round, you can have that fifth-year player option or anything like that? That? Do you do you think that that weighed in on the uh, the the minds of the the or of Bill Belichick? I guess when making this decision, I'm honestly not sure. Maybe like I guess for me, the way I look at it is a fifth year option for a first rounder is going to be you know relatively cheap considering like if you're a left tackle. Like look at the fifth year option on Isaiah Isaiah Wynn that I don't think they should have picked up, but they did. He's on the books for just barely into the double digits for cap hit. So when you're talking about a left tackle, it's absolutely a huge deal having that fifth year option a guard are you going to pay a guard that kind of money i don't think so they just shipped shaq mason out for making less than that and he's a proven commodity so i mean maybe they're thinking something along those lines but i just for me it doesn't make sense personally and i'd also like to get into when we start talking about the offensive line and like both the tackle positions look at isaiah Wynn and look at trent brown both of these guys have significant injury histories Neither of them has really ever been able to stay on the field. Um, Trent Brown's very good when he is on the field, but he isn't on the field often. Uh, same thing, Isaiah Wynn, sometimes he looks more than competent. Sometimes he looks completely lost out there. So to not use that pick on a tackle, to, to have depth behind these guys that are ultimately big question marks, that's also another piece of the puzzle here, why I'm not totally sold on taking Cole Strange at pick 29. And then on top of that, Isaiah wins in a contract year. So if you're not, you know, replacing him as a left tackle right now, you're either looking at assuming this is assuming that Cole Strange stays at left guard. You're either keeping Isaiah Win as a part of your long-term plan, which doesn't seem to be a very good idea, hasn't has proven to be over the past four years that he's just not that guy, or you're going to hand over the reins to a rookie left tackle next year, which. It's probably not the best idea either. You want to start grooming that guy now. So on a lot of levels, it's kind of a puzzling pick. 
Yeah, no, I get that, and it is a little weird, and I obvi- I want nothing to do with Isaiah Wynn, so, I, I mean, I don't know what we're going to end up doing with him or or how we're going to do it, but uh, I've, I've been against him for a while now. I think a lot of Patriots fans probably are at this point, so I don't know. It's an interesting pick, and, and it's a, a head-scratcher, but hopefully this guy will be a versatile guy who they're going to be able to have for a long period of time, like a Logan Mankins, like I said, that they're going to be able to be having confidence in, but also, like you said, Andrew, I would have felt confident if they have done something with an offensive guard later in the draft. That just it feels like the, I feel confident in them to make those kind of decisions with the with the guard position specifically. So I don't know if you needed to reach on this player and do it now, but uh, maybe they just didn't see anyone else uh, that they were able to get. But there's a lot of other picks to go over, and we're going to do that. So keep it right here on ninety point seven WKKL for more of the claptrap after this. The claptrap with your host Zach Clap. We're talking Patriots draft class right now. I brought Andrew Brack back onto the show. We had him on last week to talk going into the draft, seeing what we thought the Patriots might end up doing. I think it's safe to say that it's hard to actually predict what the Patriots are going to do on any given year. They go out and they get Cole Strange, and we talked about him all last segment. But now we got to move on to their round two pick, number 50 overall, Tyquan Thornton, the wide receiver out of Baylor. He is is the fastest guy in the draft class, or at least he had the fastest 40 time. And we got to ask what Andrew actually thinks of this guy, this kid here. He's listed at, I believe, six foot two, 181 pounds, and extremely fast. So, Andrew, do you like the pick going for a wide receiver here? And do you think that they made the right choice on this one? I know that there was a couple others picked right afterwards. Do you like Tyquan Thornton, or where do you think he should have been? Um, he's definitely an intriguing player with a lot of upside. You know, he didn't have great college production. So, like when you want, when you see somebody getting drafted that high, especially. In a trade-up scenario, you'd like to see it be somebody with a little more, you know, production at the college level, whether it would have been George Pickens, Sky Moore, somebody like that who was still on the board, somebody who was a little more refined. Personally, I was I wanted George Pickens right there when they traded up. I thought that was going to be the play just because he's, you know, a first-round talent who really only slid to the second round because of an ACL tear last spring. But to get back on Thornton. A lot of it is, you know, they need that outside guy. You saw that by the trade for Devontae Parker is kind of a stopgap, if you will. He's obviously, you know, with his age, he's not going to be a long-term solution, but he can definitely help in the short term. They've lacked that presence on the outside, somebody who could make plays outside the numbers and th- threaten defenses vertically. They just haven't had that guy, and that's what they're searching for in a pick like Tyquan Thornton. The only problem is his weight. You know, he's 181 pounds. He's a smaller guy. So if he's going to be lined up outside playing that X position, yeah, he's fast. He has good releases. He can kind of get away from guys that way. But if a professional cornerback gets their hands on him, he's not going to be able to get off the line. They're going to completely disrupt his timing. They're going to reroute him, and he's going to be kind of useless out there. I think the best-case scenario is to have him in the Z wide receiver position, kind of, so he gets a free release off the line. You can start to work a lot of those vertical routes still from the Z with a free release and use that speed. But if they drafted him to be that outside guy, he's going to have to put on some weight. He's, he's got to get up to at least 190 pounds to be able, probably more like 195. But at that point, are you sacrificing some of the speed, you know? that All that said, some of the criticisms that I've seen of him don't seem to be fair. A lot of people are getting on him about his hand size. I know you and I have kind of laughed about that type of thing on this show a few oh, times yeah. before. Um, that would worry me more if he was like a body catcher, kind of like almost like an Aaron Dobson was. He had a similar criticism coming out. He kind of used 
pins the ball to his body to catch the ball. Thornton is a hands catcher. He catches the ball away from his frame very naturally, plays through contact. So there's definitely reason for optimism there. But I think, much like the Cole Strange pick, it was a little bit of a reach. Yeah, I I mean, that's what they're being talked about. And he certainly seems like a thin-bodied guy. He's got the height, I guess, but and the speed, obviously. But yeah, he's got to put on some size. And that's what you do when you come to the NFL. You become a grown man, and maybe you can put on the size. But like you said, will it be at a a loss in a speed category? And uh, it, it seems as though maybe they're trying to go out and get the guy that was what we were hoping Nelson Aguilar could be. Do you think there's anything to be said about that, that he's trying to be what we thought he uh, Aguilar could have been for this squad? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And that makes me think that Nelson Aguilar, you know, he's one and done this year unless, you know, he really shows them something and is willing to sign at a discounted rate. I think he offers a very similar skill set to Nelson Aguilar. And as we saw last year, Nelson Aguilar outside playing the X is a smaller guy. He just wasn't really able to do the vertical routes the way that he would have if he was able to line up elsewhere. So I think there's definitely a lot of overlap in those two skill sets, um, but it does, you know, having Tyquan Thornton, if they are going to try him on the outside, in addition to Devontae Parker, that does slot Nelson Aguilar down in the pecking order to more where he should be. He should be playing out of the slot. He should be playing out of the Z. He'll be a lot more effective that way. So that is kind of a domino effect of having a guy like Tyquan Thornton and having Devontae Parker on the roster is it kind of slots the other guys where they're supposed to be and they can be more effective. Yeah, I like that. Have more depth, put the guys into the spots that they need to be so they can actually be effective. But you also mentioned that there was some wide receiver or at least one wide receiver picked close by George Pinkins going to the Steelers. And the Patriots did jump up over teams like the Steelers and the Chiefs that we all know have had great success with picking wide receivers or or making wide receivers into much better players, especially the Steelers, but also the Chiefs at times. Now you had George Pinkins go or Pickens go. Uh, a couple of picks after Tyquan Thornton. Then even the Colts picked Alec Pierce, and then the Chiefs picked Sky Moore. Do you think that not only uh, is are we going to be comparing Tyquan Thornton to those players for years to come, do you think, though, also that maybe the Patriots jumped over the Steelers because they wanted to go after a Thornton? Or do you think that the, the Steelers actually got their guy? I know you said you like Pickens, too. I mean, there's really no way to tell. I mean... Even if, you know, a lot of people in the media want to say, oh, Bill knew that they were going to take this guy. So he has no idea what their big board was like. He might have guessed, hey, they're probably going to take a receiver here. He had no idea which one. Neither do I. Neither does anybody besides the Steelers and the guys in that war room. I do think that, yeah, this does open the door for a potential almost like 2.0 of Nikhil Harry, A.J. Brown type thing, where every time you see A.J. Brown play, you're like, oh, and we hit the wrong guy. We could have had him, but we took Harry. So that definitely opens it where so many guys went consecutively after Tyquan Thornton, that might um, might even be more of an effect, if, especially <laughs> yeah. if all three of those guys go on to have successful careers and Thornton busts. Ouch. But I think the big one people are definitely going to look at just because they're you know taller, more physical outside guys, a lot of people are going to be comparing him to Pickens for years to come. Yeah, that's, that's got to be the way it is. Like you said, Nikhil Harry situation, we just had this happen. So obviously it's going to be on everyone's mind. We're going to see what happens with that. But there are other draft picks, including a couple of cornerbacks that the Patriots went with the next couple of picks that I want to talk about. We're going to do that when we come back after this on 90.7 WKKL. The Clap Trap with your host, Zach Clap. 
New England Patriots draft class is officially set up. We're talking all about it. I brought Andrew back onto the show. We've gone over the first couple of picks in Cole Strange and Tyquan Thornton, hopefully guys that are going to be able to contribute this year. And if you missed any of that, this will all be up as a podcast to hear what Andrew had to say about those players. But we got to move on to the next picks. The Patriots did have a third round pick as well, and they went with a couple of cornerbacks in the third and fourth round with their third and fourth picks in the draft, starting off with Marcus Jones, a cornerback pick number 85 overall at Houston, and he is a five foot eight, 174-pound listed cornerback, and we're going to see what he's going to be able to do, but we also went after a Jack Jones, so a couple of Joneses coming into uh, the Patriots locker room for depth at that cornerback position. I got to ask, Andrew, how do you feel about the cornerback picks? Do you think either one of these guys can actually develop into something legitimate? Are you worried about how small Marcus Jones is at all I know he was also touted as a big return guy I believe what do you think of those couple of picks that they made despite them both being undersized guys I actually like both of the picks I I didn't think that they would pick two undersized cornerbacks back to back like that but if you remember a few weeks ago I posted my top 50 big board of guys that I thought the Patriots would be looking at in the top you know, four or five rounds, top 150. I had both Marcus Jones and Jack Jones on there. I didn't think that they would go after both just because it kind of deviates away from what they typically look for just size-wise for cornerbacks. But with Marcus Jones, you know, he's a very, very good cover guy, very good in man. So I look at him, obviously, with his height. He's going to have to play inside. He's going to have to play the slot, which, you know, I guess with John Jones, his recent injury history You wonder if the Patriots are going to move on from him or what I think is more likely is he's a potential Devin McCourty replacement when he's gone to slide back, play that free safety position, prolong his career, and then have Marcus Jones slide in and handle slot duties. As far as Jack Jones, he is a very, very talented player. He had a lot of off-field issues. He's obviously height-wise, he meets the requirements to play on the perimeter at 5'11", but he's rail thin, a guy who's going to have to put on some more weight for sure. Um, I would have liked to see a faster 40 time from him at that size, and at that weight, um, he ran somewhere in the low 4.5s. So the big thing for him is, is he going to be big and strong enough to play the boundary cornerback position as a pro? He was very good at playing press man in college. He has excellent technique, as I said. He's a player that definitely should have gone in the top 100 and would have if not for his off-field issues. So at that point, from a value standpoint, I do like the pick very much because of that. I like it too, and I, I think that... Uh... You know, what with what they said about, I believe, Marcus Jones, right? He's a return guy as well. I, I think that they were giving ridiculous comparisons like Dante Hall out there, which I, I, I hate the fact that they did that. But do you like the fact that he's versatile that way? Do you think that that played into everything as well? You said he can play kind of slot. He can maybe play outside. He's a man-to-man guy, and he can do special teams. Do you think that that's one of the major reasons they picked him up? Absolutely. I do think that the special teams thing kind of played a role. Um you know, having like a really good return man is kind of something the Patriots have lacked for years. I know um, Gunnar Olszewski kind of two years ago, like just, you know, kind of fell backwards into an all-pro nomination. I think that was really more just, you know, a result of the unit as a whole. Like last year, obviously, we saw him kind of get exposed. It was just a fluke year. He's not particularly good 
in the return game. Um, so I, I do think the Patriots are looking for like a dynamic return man. Um, they signed Jabril Peppers in the offseason, who can also pretty good at punt returning. So like they'll have they'll have a few guys that they can choose from, and maybe you know based off injuries and you know depth charts stuff like that, just kind of switch guys up, move them in and out. You know, as much as people might think that doesn't matter, I mean I'm not sure how much it does either, but I know it's something that Bill Belichick always looks for, and it always catches his eye. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited about it. I, I'm interested to see. I think that, like I said, some of those comparisons uh, to to old some of the greatest return men in the game, I don't like that. But otherwise, it, it's, it seems like it'll be an interesting pick, and, and the versatility and the ability to do a lot of different things, like you said, is going to be a great thing. Now, there is another player that was picked in the fourth round that I think had a similar kind of, uh, you know, he's a speedy guy, he can do a couple of different things, and that's Pierre Strong, the running back, picked at 127 overall. Did you like this pick uh, for the Patriots? getting another running back when we already seem to have a lot of running backs on the team that are very capable of doing what they're supposed to do yeah I do I, I I like to pick a lot I thought it was great value you know the Patriots are getting faster obviously as we saw with the Thornton thing they took the guy that ran the fastest 40 for wide receivers granted that was because Jameson Williams wasn't able to run but Pierre Strong ran the fastest 40 out of any running back in the draft you know he's got pretty good pass catching ability as well so it's not like he's totally you know one-dimensionable or anything I think if I was going to give him a you know, comparison to a prior Patriot, I would say he's kind of Shane Vereen-esque. He reminds me a lot of Shane Vereen, probably a faster version of Shane Vereen. As far as the stable running backs the Patriots have now, Damian Harris is in a contract year. I'm not sure, you know, unless he's willing to take some kind of hometown discount, he's probably going to be leaving in free agency. I would guess Bill Belichick has shown a lot of reluctance to pay running backs in the past. Oh, yeah. But it might be different where Harris, you know, doesn't have a ton of mileage on him either. He redshirted his rookie year. So, I don't know. We'll see how that plays out. James White is also obviously on the roster, but he's coming back. He's older, and he's coming back from a hip injury. He's on a one-year deal. You know, this could be his last year. New England could be his last year playing football because rumor has it he's not going to be ready for the start of camp while he comes back from that hip injury. So, at that point, outside of White and... Damian Harris in a contract year. Really, all you have for the long-term future is Ramondre Stevenson, who looks awesome. I think he could be a bell cow back for sure. Three downs, never come off the field. But it's definitely nice to get that added layer of security drafting a guy like Pierre Strong. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and I don't have any confidence in White to come back. Love the player. Hope that he can. Hope it's not the end of his career. But it just seems like coming back from that type of an injury for a running back is going to be very difficult. And like you said, he's not even going to be there for the start of the season. So you go out, you bring in a guy like Strong. He's going to be able to do things. And he's not going to be one-dimensional. So it's not going to be like, oh, Pierre Strong's out there. They're obviously passing. Or they're obviously running. So, you know, I love that ability as well because that's one of the major things I've had problems with with some of the running backs that we've had over the past couple of years where it seems like they're more one-dimensional and it's pretty easy for the offense uh, or the defense to guess what they're going to be doing. So that was an interesting pick. Got another running back later on in the draft as well, and I want to talk about that and the other remaining picks when we come back after this on 90.7 WKKL. The Clap Trap with your host, Zach Clap. Okay, we've gotten through the majority of the picks that seem to be helpful picks. You got a couple of cornerbacks that are going to help with the de the the depth at that position. You got a running back in Pierre Strong we just talked about who could step in and be a good piece for the team as well. You got Cole Strange, you got Tyquan Thornton. They're trying to fill certain needs and kind of uh, ignoring some of the other needs, it seems. And they went on in that draft, and they had another fourth-round draft pick. This one was kind of a head-scratcher for me. I don't really get it. 
And that is the Bailey Zappi pick, the quarterback out of Western Kentucky. So I got to ask Andrew how you feel about the Patriots going out and drafting what seems to be lift, listed as just a six foot flat, 215 pound quarterback out of Western Kentucky. Yeah, it looks like he had some great stats in college, but. Do you think that there was a reason for them going after this player in the fourth round? Did they need to do this? Do you think they could have waited or gone after somebody else? Or how do you feel about them picking a quarterback in the fourth round? Um, I mean, I definitely think they could have waited. I mean, at the point when they took him, they still, um, Sam Howell, who was, you know, regarded as a borderline first round talent. I mean, I never thought he was, but he was still on the board. So, I mean, in all likelihood, he was going to go if the Patriots didn't take uh, zappy there that he how would have gone before them and then they could have you know gotten him later that's that would be my best guess you know a lot about the pick i guess it says more for jared stidham that you know he's probably not going to make it out of camp this year his time with the patriots is likely over obviously you have a backup of brian hoyer who's getting older could be his last year before he he might transition to a coaching role who knows i do think it was a little bit early for the pick especially you know just given a lot of the holes on the team, you know, like anybody who watched the team back in January get completely run off the field by the Buffalo Bills, the defense was absolutely useless. Yeah. Um, they haven't been able to force the Bills to punt in the past eight quarters. You'd like to see them kind of be stacking up a little bit more in the linebacker group, in the front seven. Obviously, they addressed their cornerback situation. You'd like to really see them be pounding defense at that point. I know that's certainly what I was looking for. So seeing like a guy who's, you know, likely not going to see the field probably ever, you know, unless Mac Jones were to go down. I just, I, I think it's a little bit of a head-scratching pick there. I mean, he's not he's not a bad player by any means. He definitely is intriguing, has some upside. He could even be a high-end backup at some point because, I mean, last year we saw him totally rewrite the FBS record books. He threw for just under 6,000 yards and had 62 touchdown passes. So there's definitely some upside there, but, again, just where he was taken and given the current needs on the roster, I just I find it to be a little bit confusing. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I I don't know why you go and you reach at that point to get that type of a player. You can't go and find another backup quarterback. The only thing that I was thinking about, and this is just like a weird way to go about this. I doubt that this is even what they're actually trying to do. But maybe you're trying to create another Garoppolo situation where you can get, bring a guy in who pushes Mac Jones to be better, more competition from that standpoint. He's a young guy, so Mac Jones is looking at him like, okay, he could actually come in and take my job instead of just having like a Brian Hoyer or Stidham who means nothing they're obviously not going to push him much but also if you can get him out there and he looks halfway decent in preseason games other teams might go crazy for him and all of a sudden you're getting offers for a second or a third round pick for him I'm guessing that that's maybe one of the only ways that this could work out do you think there's anything to be said about that I, I mean I don't really know much about this player you said like you said he kind of rewrote the uh, the stats records and all that kind of stuff for college. Do you think that he's going to be able to come in, show something in preseason, and maybe we can trade him or something like that? Or do you think he's actually going to stick as the backup quarterback here? I mean, there's always a potential for a quarterback to be traded if he flashes anything good, just because it's such a there's so many there's always a team that's going to be desperate for a quarterback always. So from that standpoint, it's a possibility. I think if you were looking to go that route, Sam Howell would have definitely been the pick just because he's a more he's a brand name. Really, that's a big part of it. And then it's like, hey, you know, you see him start kind of lighting it up within the preseason. It's like, oh man, maybe we were wrong about this guy. Why don't we trade for him? In this situation, I think the more likely scenario is that he just stays as a long-term backup. But, I mean, with these guys, 
you never know. So we'll see. And you never know how desperate a team's going to get when it comes to filling the quarterback position. So, you know, maybe they get a third third round pick for him at some point. Maybe they get a second round pick for him at some point. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, I don't hate going after a quarterback and just seeing just because, like you said, everyone could go, go gaga over a quarterback, even if they just see him do something in preseason. I don't know if that's going to be the case, but I still wouldn't have liked them to do it in the fourth round. I, I still would have rather them do it later on. Uh, but I, what do I know, right? Uh, I have no idea what's going on with these picks or where they should be slotted or what was still available on the board. Now, the Patriots did still have three sixth-round picks and a seventh-round pick that they also brought in. So I got to ask real quick, of those players, the Kevin Harris, the running back, Sam Roberts, a D tackle, Jason Hines, who's a guard, and Andrew Stubert, who's an offensive tackle. Do you see anything coming from those guys? Do you think any of them are actually going to produce for the Patriots be able to jump in at all? Uh, surprisingly, yes, I do. So Kevin Harris, he's just a bigger bodied back. He is, you know, six feet, I believe is 220 pounds. He had, you know, comes from a pretty good program, pretty big time program in South Carolina. You know, he had over 1,600 yards last year, and he had, like, 19 touchdowns. So, you know, pretty productive. I think he's really just Damian Harris insurance, I guess, if you want to look at it that way, just in case they're unable to, you know, retain him. Sam Roberts, I think a lot of a lot of what they want out of him, I think, is going to be special teams. I mean, he'd probably have to be a very package-specific player along the defensive line, but he has been excellent in his college career at blocking kicks you know, field goal attempts. So I believe he had five or six blocked kicks in his career. So that's definitely something from a special team standpoint. I can definitely see him sticking around there. Um, As far as both Hines and Stuber, the offensive linemen, the Patriots, they're both guards. Um, I guess Stuber has a little bit more tackle guard versatility, if you want to call it that. Both of them come from big time programs, LSU and Michigan, respectively. The Patriots have been phenomenal at developing guards that came out on day three, especially ones from these bigger time programs. So, I mean, you remember Michael Onwayo, same thing like two years ago, out of Michigan, offensive lineman, drafted in the seventh round, and he's a stud now. So there's definitely, there's always going to be intrigue for me on bigger bodied guards from big time programs when the Patriots take them in the later rounds, just because they've just had such a knack for developing these guys. So, I mean, are all four of them going to stick around? Probably not, no. But it's definitely going to be interesting to watch this summer. Yeah, I do like when they go after the offensive, uh, the guards and the tackles late in the draft. Like you said, Onwenu was a good one. And I think that they've done that and had a good history of those players in the past. That's just why I question even more the first round pick with Cole Strange. I mean, he's going to have to be a stud. I'm assuming he will be. But, you know, I'd rather you go after these guys later on in the draft and try and make somebody. Those usually end up turning out to be better for the Patriots anyways. But what do I know? Once again, what do I know? So overall, we think it was a pretty decent draft class for the Patriots we think that we're going to have some players that are going to step up and be able to jump into this team hopefully create a spark and hopefully we'll be able to actually do something this year in the AFC which is going to be a stacked conference so thank you Andrew I appreciate you coming on talking all about these draft picks if you guys missed any of this it will be up as a podcast we went through all of the Patriots draft picks and what Andrew thinks about each one of them and where they were slotted in. So thank you again for all of that. If you guys aren't following him, he is Patriots underscore Andrew on Twitter. I suggested he's got great information about the Patriots, everything going on with that team. And as the offseason progresses, we'll be bringing you back on as we get closer and closer to the season to see what this team is going to be in a, once again, like I said, stacked AFC, how hard that's going to be. So I can't wait to go over uh, the, the upcoming schedule and all that kind of stuff. So thank you, Andrew, for coming on again. I appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me. Looking forward to coming back again. All right, guys. Keep it right here on 90.7 WKKL for more of the Capes Classic Alternative.